0: I do think that people who have been canceled, if you talk to them about how they're making a living, like you're talking to people who have pivoted. Every single one of them has had to pivot because they can no longer make a living the way they used to. And I think it's a really interesting topic. On the other hand, it's tricky because they don't want to tell you where they're working because, because then, the, then the mob is going to come there.
1: Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest, whose voice you just heard, is writer Stephen Elliott. I'm going to tell you more about him in a minute, but before that, a couple of items of business. Because this is a writing themed episode, I'm going to make a plug for something a little non podcast related, uh, and that is my own writing class. My first ever personal essay and memoir masterclass on Zoom wrapped up recently and was a ton of fun and a great success, I think. So much so, I'm going to offer another one. It's starting in January and will run for eight consecutive Mondays, January 10th through February 28th, from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. I made it a little earlier than the previous one to accommodate more time zones. We had someone in Ireland uh, in the last class who was up until 2 a.m. with us. So this one will be 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, 12 to 3 Pacific, et cetera. The application deadline is Monday, December 20th, and you can learn more about everything at DownMasterclass.com. Space is limited to 12, but if this interests you, please do check it out. Now, uh, to my guest, Stephen Elliott, As with my conversation with comedian Jamie Kilstein a few weeks ago, this interview originated as part of the video series, The Unspeakeasy, which lives on the unspeakable YouTube channel. But um, I thought it was compelling enough to bring to the podcast itself. Stephen, uh, just so you know, has published eight books, including The Adderall Diaries and Happy Baby. He's directed three films including About Cherry and After Adderall. In 2009, he founded the literary site The Rumpus, which launched the careers of writers like Roxane Gay and Cheryl Strayed. In 2017, The Rumpus was purchased by its former managing editor. Stephen's no longer affiliated with it. Why am I telling you all this? I think it's important to supply some context for what is, by no means, the only thing we talk about here, but is nonetheless a major point of discussion, and that is the so-called shitty media men list. In 2017, Stephen was one of over 70 men accused of sexual misconduct on this shitty media men list, and that was an anonymously sourced Google document, a a living document that was um, publicly available for a certain period of time. It was then made unavailable, but uh, the damage was already done. The accusations on that list ranged from things like weird lunch dates to inappropriate flirting, to stalking to physical violence and all out rape. Stephen was accused of, quote, multiple rapes. And in 2018, he filed a defamation lawsuit against the list's creator, the journalist Moira Donegan. Now, again, I realize this is getting into the weeds, but it's important to explain the context. Stephen says the reason he filed the suit, and this was his exact wording to me when I asked him to clarify, is because he feels he is in the unique position of knowing not only that he did not rape anyone, but that there is no one out in the world who believed he had raped them. Stephen has been very public about his involvement in the fetish community and has described his sexuality as entirely connected to male submission, bondage, and cross dressing. Um, This is a weird way to introduce a podcast guest, but bear with me. Stephen has rarely, if ever, had penetrative sex, he says, and he says the accusation was clearly malicious and intentionally false. The case has been ongoing for three years and the current status. Is that Donegan's lawyer is trying to get it dismissed under Section 230, a law meant to protect sites like Google and Facebook from being sued for what people post on their platforms. And the judge has yet to rule on whether the trial can proceed. Anyway, this interview is not about Moira Donegan or even really about this lawsuit. But again, I wanted to be absolutely clear on the facts because we talk kind of, um, we talk in the interview as if some people. Are already familiar with it. Anyway, the reason I invited Stephen to talk with me is because, uh, no surprise, he is about as canceled as you can get. And his life over the last few years has been an example, um, kind of unique example of the midlife or mid career, he would say post career pivot. I keep talking about on this show. You can hear my monologue about it on the August 1st edition from last summer, for instance. Now, despite uh, not being rich, Stephen has been investing in real estate, and he has a Substack newsletter that he's described as investment advice for poets. So we talked about that, and we talked about how uh, certain corners of the literary community might be um, perhaps more susceptible to getting swept up in mob attacks. At least that's what he thinks. Um, And speaking of which, it is possible that I'll get some pushback, um, not mobbing, I don't think, but who knows, for airing this interview. Stephen's decision to file the lawsuit has made him, I think it's fair to say, a pariah in mainstream literary circles. There are people in pretty prominent media positions, people with lots of Twitter followers and big jobs at big organizations that have, by all appearances, reflexively denounced him as not only a top-tier enemy of the Me Too movement, but kind of a case in point for the movement's very existence. Needless to say, Stephen doesn't make a lot of media appearances, not even on podcasts like this. But I am putting him on this podcast. Not that this will come as a surprise to you, but... I find that sort of groupthink, rush to judgment, not only reprehensible on its face, but in fact, an affront to what it means, what it should mean anyway, to be a writer, a journalist, to be anyone who thinks for a living, anyone who uses their brain for their job. Obviously, I don't know the truth of what went on between anyone whose name appeared on that list and the person or people who put that name there. No one can know but the parties involved. But I do know, and I'm pretty sure I've said this before publicly, that even if you think that anonymous, unsubstantiated public accusations of serious offenses, including crimes like rape, somehow fall into the category of free speech, and you could make that argument. This is not how society moves forward. It's not, in my view, how women who feel unsafe in the world can be made to feel more safe. Regardless of what anyone thinks of Stephen Elliott, I can't believe that even his biggest detractors want to live in a world where someone's life, or at least their livelihood and their reputation, and that's pretty much your life, can be destroyed by rumors. That's not what a civilized society looks like. That's what high school looks like. And part of the reason Stephen's here is that I don't run my podcast according to high school rules. So with that, here's our conversation. Hi, Stephen Elliott. I'm Megan Dom. How are you?
0: Not so bad, It's, it's a hot day. I know. For everybody,
1: I guess. Your fan's not on. So I assume that you've got some something else going on. I had the
0: AC running, but I turned it off so that wow. it wouldn't be too loud. But if, it, but if I start
1: sweating, I'm going to put the AC back the, on. This is the low production value uh, arm of this podcast. So uh, I think it's appropriate that we're speaking because, as I told you, in my effort, my ongoing effort to up my game with the podcast and... Uh, embolden my professional pivot I've started this video element we're going to have mm-hmm. informal conversations with people uh and you and I had a similar uh similar we were in a similar state of mind because I did a podcast uh a few weeks ago about this idea of the professional pivot and your newsletter was on a very similar theme so
0: yeah yeah that was really interesting I was like oh I wish I'd Heard your piece before I set it out because it was so. uh, Oh, I see. Not
1: not before you wrote it, though. That would have been a disaster. Mm. But so, so. (laughs) But tell us what yours was about, and then we'll. Gosh, I don't. I don't even. I don't even remember what I said. What I I have no idea what I said.
0: Okay. Well, first of all, what's your
1: newsletter? Okay, because people know. Okay, so you and I are about the same age, and we're like you know we had we had really big careers in mainstream media. Mm. No, we didn't. I, you know, but we were like part of the. We we published. We had normal. Publishers, we had, we were working journalists. You started, you started the Rumpus, which it was huge. Uh, yeah,
0: for, yeah, it was really big for a while. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, and now here we are doing our own thing. I'm doing podcast. You are doing uh, a Substack. So, tell us what you're up to. These yeah. Days.
0: Well, the Substack, interestingly, was in a lot of ways to address a different question, because. You know, I, I stopped writing. You know, I had like I don't want to go too much into all the details because it gets so boring. But you know, I had a whole cancellation episode, and I was so angry at the literary world.
1: We can and get I, into that you know, we'll, if you want. we we'll yeah. can get into it,
0: but but I want to get into it in a way that addresses this topic specifically. You know, because when you get canceled, you have to find a new way to make a living. You know, so actually, people that are experiencing cancellation a big A big thing for them, especially if they're, if they're turned on you know if they're exiled from their community, is, you know, how do I make a living now? Like, what is my job now? Like you know, my publisher and my editor both spoke out publicly against me when I, I, uh, when I filed the, uh, my lawsuit against the shitty media Men list, and my agent dropped me. And obviously, uh, I, was in, I was in Hollywood at the time, and, and I was making some inroads thinking I was going to be writing for television. That was off the table because, of, you know, there was this huge story everywhere that I was, you know, that I sued the creator of the shitty media men list. It was just like there was no chance of any of that happening. That was all done. I also was not invited that year to teach at Provincetown where I'd been teaching every summer for several years. Just like I haven't been invited.
1: Program, what is that? Tell us what that is a little bit.
0: Provincetown is the oldest, uh, is the oldest artist community in the, in the country. It was the first, it was the first artist community uh, art, like artist uh, retreat or whatever. I don't know what you put it, but it was the first one. You
1: can not say colony anymore, actually. Yeah. Is that, you're not allowed to say colony. Colony um, is now McDowell.
0: Yeah. So they have a, they have a similar thing, you know, uh, where you have a uh, fellows come in over the winter, but then in the summer they have uh, a workshop. You know, so students pay to take classes. And I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I love Provincetown. I don't know that they made some decision not to invite me. You know, we didn't even address it. <laughs> you know, it might, it might be that students wouldn't sign up for my classes anymore. But I used to. Get regularly asked to teach workshops or to give a speech at a school, you know, and that could be, you know, 20 percent of my income for the year easily. Those kind of things, you know, so I wasn't going to be able to publish very easily or get paid very easily for publishing. The teaching gigs were gone. The, The guest speaking gigs were definitely gone, you know, and I just I had to figure out a new way to make a living with and so I started um you know I had a property that I owned in New Orleans which was a double and so I, I moved into one side and started legally you know doing short-term rentals on the other side and then I started managing other properties and trying to figure out real estate but you know I also just quit writing entirely you know like I mean, uh, occasionally an essay would come out and I would send it to the Quillette or somewhere, but pretty much like for 20 something years, every day I sit down for four to five hours and I try to write something, you know, I wasn't able to teach anymore. I wasn't able to get any work. I wasn't able to make a living in any of the ways that I had made a living. And so I started doing real estate and managing property for people in New Orleans Uh, you know, my own, but also other people's properties. Um, And I basically had to like, it took a little while, but I had to figure out just a whole new way to make a living in a way that I'd never made a living before. I For 20 years or or something, I'd been, you know, editing magazines and and writing and guest speaking and lecturing and so forth. So all of that was gone. And as I mentioned, I don't know if it cut out, but, uh, you know, I had been... Spending four or five hours, pretty much seven days a week, writing every day, you know, or trying.
1: How many and books do you have? How many books have you published?
0: I've written eight books. And, yeah. you know, my, my agent dropped me. My editor and my publisher both made statements distancing themselves from me when I, when I sued the creator of the shitty media men list. So I found this new way to make a living, but and I stopped writing. and I didn't think I was going to ever write again. I did occasionally have an essay that kind of just kind of flowed out of me uncontrollably, and I would send it to Quillette generally. But I wasn't sitting there trying to write every day, so it's not the same. Even though I published once, in a, you know, once a year, maybe um, it wasn't like it was a completely different lifestyle. And I I did figure out how to make a living, but the thing about doing real estate, managing properties, is, and and also also driving Ubers it's like, that's a way to make money. And that's like, fine, you know, like, but it's not, there's no, it's meaningless. Otherwise it's only a way to make a living. You know, you have to have meaning in your life and creating and and creativity is one way to have meaning in your life. And I should go even further. If I was to like write a self-help book, you know, which maybe I'm doing the, What most people really want is just to love their job. They Mm -hmm. think they want money, but they really only want money in order that they have the freedom to do that thing they enjoy doing full time. Whereas, if they were if they loved their job, that would already they would already be there. Like the goal of most people, they don't know it. You know, some people like they're chasing money, they're chasing other things their goal when you really sit down with them and talk through what they want and their end game you realize oh you really you just want to love your job that's actually all you want and so that was never going to happen with real estate you know and property management that's always just going to be a way to make a living and and you know you have to have that but it was it was not going to give my life meaning you know and so earlier this year I guess in like January, I started trying to write again. I just kind of like determined that I was like, I should try to start writing because I know that writing gives life meaning. You know, I know that my happiest moments are when I'm flowing and I have ideas and I'm getting them on the page. And, you know, I don't I don't have children. And I'm not married. So there's a lot of the other ways where you can find meaning I, where I didn't have available. Um and I thought that I would uh but but I believe in those things. I do think those are very legitimate ways to find okay, me. i agree I agree
1: for most people, you know? not for me, but for most people mm-hmm. yes
0: yeah.
1: yeah and
0: but uh i thought well i've had like all these successes, but also so many failures and and i I came at everything from such an unusual angle, you know, like I never studied writing uh i didn 't have an agent for my first four books. You know, I was raised in group homes, went to Chicago public schools, you know, the school, the high school I went to had a 50% dropout rate. I didn't have, nobody told me I should apply to Stanford. I literally never heard of Stanford, you know, so I went to the University of Illinois because that was where the good kids went to, you know, um, but being a ward of the state and growing up in group homes, I've just kind of always been an outsider and I've had to kind of teach myself, you know, how to do everything. Like I had to learn how to do real estate, you know, I I had to everything.
1: Right. So I want to know. Uh, I don't want to skip ahead too much. But first of all, you were managing properties. This is such a banal question, but I actually think it's worth asking. Did you know how to, like, fix things? Did you know? No, how do home I didn't. Floor?
0: No, actually, actually the opposite. I'm really bad at fixing things. <laughs> but I did have a moment a few years ago before all this happened, actually. And it was with Nick Flynn. I was hang- the poet. You know, he's a very handy guy. He's always fixing stuff. <laughs> and he was over at my house, and and I, he was going to help me like hang a picture. I literally didn't know how to hang a picture, and he he's going to you know put the nail in the wall, and and he puts a hammer just right through the drywall, <laughs> and it just suddenly dawned on me, you know, like that the only difference between Nick and I was that Nick thought he could fix things, and I didn't think I could fix things, and that was the you know that was just a huge lesson. But he doesn't
1: the stud finder for the. i'm sure I'm i'm sure
0: he knows how to use a stud finder but he didn't have one in that moment okay he just did a thing you know and like he thought he knew what he was doing and and i just realized that like oh yeah i can i can fix things you know i just need to think that i can fix things um so you 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 do figure it out and so i and so i started this substat thinking that i would just write about the things that i thought i knew how to do or kind of the stories around things i had done like I've, made, I've directed three feature films, so I can say this is how you make a movie. This is how you make a movie with no money, and this is how you make a movie with a lot of money. And I and you know I published my first four novels without an agent. I say this is how you publish a book without an agent. It's not necessarily good advice, but I can I can still say these are the things I've learned, you know, and these are my theories.
1: And so and this was the Substack, sorry to interrupt you, but just so we have a timeline. So was this like a few years ago or more recently? No, I,
0: no, I started doing the Substack in January. This is Okay, so the when
1: everyone started doing Substack, yeah.
0: Yeah, but it wasn't, the thing about the Substack is it wasn't an attempt to make money. You know, like I'm not, I don't think I'll ever make a living again writing. That's not really, I don't see that on the table, frankly, you know, like. I'm completely canceled. I don't think I'm, the literary world is not going to let me in. I mean, it's, it's conceivable that I wrote a book, that I would write a book about me too, or something that would, that, you know, cause people might be interested, but you know, I'm, I'm more of a poet and less of a journalist, you know, like I'm not really good at just like writing the thing that other people want me to write because that's where the money is. That's not really my skill, you know, like I'm not really good at doing it, at doing like my career. I don't have a lot of Extra creativity in those scenarios. I have to kind of be inspired. So the Substack was more just to get writing again and to find uh, inspiration, you know, which I think is, you know, where where so much meaning comes from. And I'm not, I'm, you know, the Substack's free. I'm not trying to make a living off the Substack. I mean, some people do pay to subscribe, and I appreciate that. <laughs> you know,
1: yeah. How, but, how does that work? So of... what's the idea? They're just voluntarily paying a paid subscription
0: yeah i guess so and i and i say that uh you know i've never been i've never been good at making money you know like i've always been kind of like a money repellent actually yeah me too Um, so but i but you know I, i do say that if you subscribe and you have a question about something i'm writing about i will give you advice on that topic so you know i wrote I wrote one about how to make a movie and somebody had questions about making a movie. And, you know, I wrote one about how to fix a sink that I did ingeniously unclog a sink in a way that is very unusual. That a lot of people would not be able to figure out, you know? So oh, I wrote a sub stack around that because a lot of people would not, you know, cause you can get a clog that's behind the wall. It's going to cost you thousands of dollars for a plumber to come get out, you know, and you have, but if you, but there's, you can do that yourself. If you figure it out, you know. If you figure out where the clog is, you can do it with a vacuum cleaner. Oh, okay. Yeah. a lot of people wouldn't have thought of that.
1: So now, that that. Is the vacuum cleaner <laughs> going to get wet? How do you not oh, short yeah. out the vacuum cleaner?
0: The vacuum cleaner is not going to short out. It's just going. But it's going to have a lot of wet gunk in the bag for sure. Right. Okay.
1: Okay. Yeah. okay. Okay. So you started writing a Substack, but okay. At this point though, were you making a conscious decision? Like I need to find meaning in my life. So I'm going to start writing about these things that I've been doing because you're saying this wasn't a money-making endeavor.
0: It wasn't a money-making endeavor at all. I mean, like, and it's still not a money-making endeavor. It's a, it's a, I just do it as a, as a vehicle to start writing again and see if I can find literary inspiration. But financially, I don't know that I would ever want to be dependent on the literary world for to make my living. You know, it's not a very reliable world. It's filled with people who lack integrity and I don't have any, uh, I'm not going to ever, you know, betray my integrity in order to pretend I believe in something I don't believe in, you know, like, I mean, if you think about it, like when I I got canceled for suing somebody who started an, an anonymous list filled with anonymous accusations, that was functioning as like a meet as a meet as a media blacklist, and all these people were assumed guilty. And my publisher, Grey Wolf Press, they're like a nonprofit publisher. A nonprofit publisher came out in favor of a list full of an, of anonymous accusations, like that. There's no integrity in the literary world. There's there's not a single. You know, I, I started The Rumpus, and I started I launched a lot of people's careers. You know, like Cheryl Strayed. And Roxanne Gay. There was probably a dozen people when the whole thing went down that came out. Like, Michelle T said this great quote where it's like, uh, he helped me get my first novel published, and after that, defended me from seeing what a monster he was. You know, like, literally, not a single person in the literary community publicly supported me. I got, you know, I got some like private messages from people. Um, and that's fine, honestly, because you know, I'm not angry at anybody that didn't say anything publicly, but in the, in the sex worker community, which is a a community that means a lot to me because I used to be a sex worker and I've done like a lot of sex worker advocacy. There was some people turned on me, but other people publicly supported me. You know, there was a diversity of opinion. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, it wasn't that like, you know, it's, it's fine that some people disagreed with what I did, but there were other people that publicly agreed with what I did. You know, it was like in the literary world, there was no diversity of opinion. It was just a monoculture, and I'm never going to participate in that. Not look, at, that's you know of no interest to me.
1: Let me ask you something, Stephen. I, I do want to talk more about your your cancellation. Uh, I, I mean, but particularly as it applies to what we're talking about more broadly. But. Do you think that if you hadn't been canceled, given what's happened with the media, given the nature of public discourse, you would still be on this track? Because I haven't been canceled, but I'm kind of in the same Mm -hmm. boat, you know? And I think that, that
0: is why I think the cancellation conversation does have a lot of relevance to people who are just midlife and making adjustments and trying to change their career, you know? So I do think that there's a lot of overlap there. I don't think that I'd be in the same place, Like I think that I, I would, I think I would have sold a television show. I think I was really close to mm-hmm. doing that. Mm-hmm. And I had written some really good pilots and I had some very good people interested in what I had written. And it would have taken a minute, but I think it would have, I think one of them would have sold. That's what I think. So yeah. that would have been different for me, obviously right. it's not, you know, but that also would have been a career change, just a different one, right? I was not a, a TV person otherwise and TV, I, I doubt would have worked out for me as a lifestyle. Like I probably would have had more money. If I had sold a TV show, I'd have had money.
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's a, out, b- a better problem to you know? have,
0: right? Yeah, it's a better problem to have. But I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have worked in TV. I wouldn't have stayed in Los Angeles. I would have just sold the show and left. Mm-hmm.
1: You know? Actually, before I forget, is there, um, you mentioned that in the sex work community industry, there's a greater diversity of viewpoint. Has has the social justice kind of uh, sensibility affected that world or is it starting to
0: it's affected that world but it hasn't had a total takeover you see like in the literary community everybody believes the same thing there's no diversity of opinion at all and and the people that that don't believe that don't believe that thing they keep quiet about it you know so the thing about it is every community has more integrity than the literary community. Like if you, if you, like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you see, you know, I mean, mean, uh... it's obviously an overstatement. Like, okay, look, if you're looking at politicians, if you're looking at other areas of the media, you'll find a similar lack of integrity, you know, in in places where you have the most ambitious people in the world competing for very small stakes, you know, in, in branches of academia and so forth. But in general, if you're just throwing darts at a board, like pretty much every other community will have more integrity than the literary community. The sex worker, I can say with certainty, no matter what happens, the sex worker community will always have more integrity than the literary community. As will the plumber, the, the plumbers of the world, and the contractors, and like you know, like ninety-nine point nine percent of jobs that people do in communities that exist in the world. Will have more integrity. The literary community is a particularly low integrity environment, and there's only a handful of places that can match it.
1: Did that surprise you?
0: It did. The thing about it is, you know, I'm an outsider, right? Even though I've become an insider, I didn't really know how to be an insider. Even when I got to college, which is so rare for a award of the state, I studied studied history, I didn't study creative writing. And so even when I had success and I was in that world, like with the rumpus, for example, you know the rumpus became a really popular online magazine, but it didn't cost me any money to start the rumpus. I just put it up mm-hmm. i was like, i just I just decided I wanted to be an editor at it, and for a while because i was i all written now and I was going to start editing and so I just started a web magazine it wasn't didn't cost me anything it's not hard to build a website you know and it became popular, but there were all you know we we were a very uh, progressive place. I was a particularly progressive person. I was always doing progressive political organizing. Uh, the rumpus was really diverse racially and, and um, gender-wise and so it Remind forth. us what
1: uh, year this was.
0: What year was this? So, oh, it was, well, We the official launch date was, was January 20th, 2009, which was the day of Obama's inauguration. So I'll never forget it. <laughs> it was, a, you um, know, it was a competing, you know, so that was the moment. But the point is, like the rumpus was, was the kind of thing that's like basically trying to um make the world a better place and it didn't occur to me that somebody would volunteer to work on the rumpus but in a, as a way to help their career you see like that's <laughs> sell like, yourself short this so so outside of my possible any possibility you know like the people that like volunteer to do, you know, unpaid labor on a web magazine, I just figured they were kind of doing it for the same reason I was, you know, that it was just fun and we were just kind of doing, it was a cool project,
1: mm-hmm. you
0: know? I, I didn't like, um, it, I mean, it just, I mean, it's, it's just so, it's just not my, my experience, you know? It's not. Uh, but when you
1: say you were very progressive, so, what does that mean? I mean, yeah, everybody was yeah, into Obama at that time, but like, for example, I mean, what, well, what other issues were, were you you know, like you're very to, far, you're far left? Under,
0: no, you have to understand, like, I personally created an organization that stopped an American apparel from opening on uh, Valencia Street in San Francisco. Rush Limbaugh did a whole segment about me attacking me, you know? <laughs> Rush Limbaugh
1: like, used to attack me all the time. <clears throat> was uh, I was one, I was an info babe and a feminazi. Nice. Yeah. Nice.
0: Sexy. In 2006, mm-hmm. I started a political action committee where we did... Readings, literary events all around the country to raise progressive, raise money for progressive congressional candidates. Prior to that, I was doing a progressive reading series, which did the same thing. In 2004, I launched Operation Ohio, which, was, which brought authors to Ohio to do voter registration readings. You know, wow. uh, I, I stopped a blue bottle of coffee from opening in Dolores Park. Like, I was ridiculously progressive. Like, I was living with two roommates in a one bedroom apartment in San Francisco. And still put together two fundraisers for Obama that raised over half a million dollars, and I and I didn't and I didn't even steal any of the money, which is crazy to me now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know uh, so, we'll so, so political I, political activism was, was a huge part of my life and political organizing. You know, and I did a, lot, a bunch of events around sex worker advocacy and uh, raising money for um, the medical facility in San Francisco and so forth. I was just a very political person, though in in some ways I was very heterodox because even though I was very progressive, I still thought it, it was at the time I believed in invade, that we had to invade Afghanistan. I remember that was a big problem for a lot of people. I was against invading Iraq, but I thought, well, we, you know, Osama bin Laden is in Afghanistan. They don't want to give him to us and he's attacked us. So, of course, we have to go in. You know, that was problematic. I remember uh, I publicly defended Woody Allen several times, you know, because... I was, my thing was prison reform. I also voted in favor of recalling Gray Davis for the same reason, you know. Um, I grew up in group homes, and I saw a lot of people who went to jail uh, as children, but were tried as adults, and I had a big problem with that. That was my biggest issue, really. Mm -hmm. So the presumption of innocence was actually always really important to me, you know. And some people have asked about the lawsuit if I regretted it. You know, because it's been so devastating for my life, uh, but my response was always like, you know, there's no version of me that doesn't file that lawsuit. It's right. not like it's not like it's it's not random. It's not like I could have not filed a lawsuit. This is just who I am.
1: Okay, so let's t- let's talk about this. So you, the lawsuit has to do with your name appearing on this document called the Shitty Media Men List. It was which is a
0: which foundational is, document of the Me Too movement.
1: Yes, like really, found,
0: it's like found. Dead Sea Scrolls level,
1: and and so how many men were on there? Was it like over a hundred or no? Uh, there was about I think there was like it only the list only was public for like
0: twelve hours, right?
1: And right, you know, so only kind of made so specific it kind of,
0: rounds. It only went through me and it was seventy four men, okay. but only six, only sixteen or seventeen of them were outlined in red, which meant uh, meant rape or violent sexual assault,
1: right? So know? it, and it was yeah, it was everything my, from like weird. Intrigue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Weird so my DMs, DMs, said, yeah. Yeah. My so, was multiple sex, multiple accusations of rape.
1: Okay. Of rape so gonna, we're going to get into a second uh, about w- how you responded to that. But um, do you think that if you had just been on this list and not sued, you would still have been canceled or would this have blown over?
0: That's a tough question. You know, I mean, there were, a, you know, I was on the list for a year prior to the lawsuit. Right. And there was a lot, it was, very impactful um i had a book come out that had really great pre-publication reviews and then all of the reviews post-publication got canceled because i was like just about the first person actually to really push back on the me too movement and say hey this is going too far and also one of the reasons i filed the lawsuit beyond the fact that there was a statute of limitations i had to file it then or not file it but you know i i could file it it was obvious that it was false of me because I don't even have sex, penetrative sex with women. I knew it was, I knew that, I knew it was a fully made-up rape charge. Other people didn't have the benefit of having that sexuality and having written about, about that sexuality. <laughs> You're
1: in a unique position now, yes.
0: So, so I had to, but, but all these guys contacted me. A lot of people, not just from the list, but from other walks of life who had been canceled as part of uh, Me Too, you know, every single one of them had considered suicide. They were there. Were there were people that I was like uh, sometimes calling three times a night. So I was that that seriously worried about them. The idea that there's no consequences to being accused of rape, and you work in media is insane. Like I don't even want to talk to people that are that stupid. You know, like you're like you're anybody that would say that is just like refusing to intellectually engage. Honestly, Are people actually saying engage, that?
1: Honestly, oh, like, it's no big, you should just move on? It's no big deal? Well, like, not, necessarily,
0: not necessarily to me, because uh, the lawsuit was so much, so huge. It's, you know, it's like a right, it's but there, avalanche but the, press on it.
1: The idea is You see is it all that, the
0: time. You right. see it all the time that so-and-so has suffered no consequences. And like Louis C.K., they say he suffered no consequences. He's still doing stand-up. Louis C.K. lost $30 million in one day. You know, like he had all his shows canceled. Like, like, you know, it's like if people aren't dead. Well, the other thing is, just because you don't necessarily know all the consequences a person goes through, you assume there's no consequences, if it's convenient for you to assume that, because otherwise you're a monster, right? If If the consequences are really extreme, and you're participating in a mob, and even if the person is guilty, but the consequences are so much worse... Than what they might deserve for whatever the crime they're accused of is you don't want to admit that to yourself. If you've participated in the mob. So there's a, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of incentive around the narrative that these men who are accused of these things didn't didn't face consequences. And that's just bullshit.
1: So why did you decide to sue on your own? Did you consider like some kind of, I don't know, like class action or group lawsuit? So tell us what your case is exactly. Well,
0: Well, I didn't I didn't consider any of that, you know, Uh, like for one thing, like I said, like because I had never had sex with anybody that works in media and because I never I don't generally have penetrative sex with women at all because that's not my sexuality, you know, because I do like more kinky submissive role. Which which you're on
1: record. I mean, let's be clear. You've written about people, people who are watching books about it. They're not familiar with you. (laughs) This is like you've established. Yeah. yeah. Okay. so your (laughs) argument, you were accused of rape like penetrative right. rape normal standard well, I,
0: issue I would, rape. I would accuse i would accuse i don't know i mean that the, it just says multiple rape accusations okay that's all it says but rape has an objective definition i okay. mean you can get a little loose with it you can say okay that could be with a finger or that could be forced oral sex but it does require contact you can't do it without touching somebody for example you know like even the broadest definition still requires a level of sex that i haven't had with anybody that works in media you know and the last times i've had sex has been uh, of that variety was when i was tied up and somebody and i was hooded actually and somebody without my consent climbed on top of me you know well then
1: you don't know who that is oh see that's no i know
0: who that i know who that is okay i mean i was i know i was in a room with one other person They're okay not, okay like not uh, random so uh but the difference between my situation and other people's situation, though, that's important is they might not know. Maybe they had sex with somebody way back and that person has a different memory or a different interpretation of that encounter, you know, so they have to worry about that. That but, but, but It's very different for somebody that thinking, like, maybe there's somebody out there that believes I raped them, whereas with me, I knew there was nobody out there that believed I raped them. I knew that the charge was malicious, you know. And almost certainly this this woman that I fired that worked for me on the rumpus that seemed to go kind of crazy. And for all I know, has been spreading false rumors since before the shitty medium end list, for all I know. You know what I mean? So there might have been like kind of like uh she might have been kind of building a, a platform for this. And and I don't I don't know a hundred percent that she's the person, just I don't know who else it could be, you know, that would have gotten the list and so forth, but I know. Like whoever put me on that list and accused me of rape is not well mentally, you know, and is also not somebody I ever had any kind of sexual interaction with, which is why the lawsuit is focused on the person who created the list. Because Moira Donegan, who created the shitty media men list, you know, she basically created this false accusation machine, you know, and and there were a lot of copycat lists cropping up when I filed the lawsuit. They were all taken down because of the lawsuit. So hmm. lo- the lawsuit has a moral dimension that is really important.
1: And so what are you asking for exactly? I
0: think it's up to the judge and jury to decide. I think in the filing, you know, the lawyer said, you know, at least 1.5 million, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it's not, that's not how the law works. You know, the, the uh, I don't even know what that's all about, but I know that the jury and the judge can decide whatever they want. You know, but, right. you know, but the important thing is, is, you know, I want to, I want to clear my name. I want people to know that I've never raped anybody. That's really important to me. And I'm never going to get that message out on Twitter. You know what I mean? Like, like people are going to believe whatever they want to believe and and proclaiming your innocence and telling your whole story. It's so boring. It's like, you know, you're trying to make your case and people just, their, their eyes just start to close. And I don't blame them because these guys call me and they start telling me how they're being falsely accused. And I'm just like, stop, I can't even hear it. I'm so bored. (laughs) You know, like, I don't want to, I don't want to know, like I'm on your side. I want to help you. And I want to talk about like, how can you rebuild your life now that you've been through this experience? But what I don't want to be your like judge and jury and like hear the case. So that's what, that's what a court is for, Mm -hmm. you know? So there will exist a larger record that people can see in. And, you know, and and then you have a third person uh, mediating. Like, I actually believe in the American legal system, you know, that when two people can't agree on something, you bring a third person in to figure it out. That makes a lot
1: of sense to me. Is there no hope of mediation in this case? Are you past that?
0: You know, I tried to um, contact Moira Downing prior to filing the lawsuit, which was interesting because she actually tweeted at one point that I was lying about that which is, of course, what had happened was I had an editor at New York Magazine and I asked the editor to try to put me in touch and the editor said that she would and did. And it turned out that the editor had not forwarded my message, right? Which is the much more obvious scenario rather than assuming that I'm just making it up and lying about trying to reach out to her. You know, she had, mm-hmm. you know she, I think it says a lot about her character that she would just assume rather than think that somebody wouldn't didn't forward the message. Instead, I'm just like making it up. So I did try to talk to her. And I think if I had been able to talk to her prior to filing a lawsuit, uh, maybe, you know, who knows, we could have figured something out. You know, she could have, you know, she could have she could have said, hey, she could have disavowed the list. She could have said that there are people falsely accused on this list. We need to be aware of that. Um, you know, she could have done a lot of things, I think. I don't know what she's open to now, you know, now it's between the lawyers. Don't yeah. you
1: think that even if you won this case, it, it, the narrative around it would just be, oh, the patriarchy prevails and the legal system is a, a rape apology uh-huh. apparatus? I mean, how, how, how would you sort of cut through that?
0: I mean, I don't think, you, there, I don't think there's any perfect solution where you, where you change everybody's mind in the world you know, and get everybody to think the way you want them to think. I don't think that happens. I think a, I think a large number of people would realize that they had been wrong, you know, that, 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 and that anonymous lists, you know, lists full of anonymous accusations are always wrong. Like there's no historical precedent where like you have a list full of people anonymously accused of something where it's a good thing. It's always a bad thing, you know, and like, and people would remember certain principles you know, that, that they thought that they forgot that they believed it. you know, in, in the literary world. And I think that'd be a good thing, uh, certainly. But that doesn't that's not the same as winning over everybody. I mean, some people are just crazy. Some mm-hmm. people are never gonna, you know, see the world. You know, like you know, we 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 have these like great documents, you know, like the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and stuff, you know, and like, you know, that uh we believe that in the importance that we believe that it's more important to let a guilty man go free than to, than to imprison an innocent person. Not everybody believes that there's never been a time in history where everybody believes that, you know, you're not, it's not going to be unanimous. I mean, I don't think that matters so much, you know, but but it's not just me, you know, this is important for the other people that were on that, you know, the, I was not the only falsely accused person on that list. That list is literally a false accusation machine. Mm. And A lot of people on the list were probably guilty of some of the stuff they were accused of, but then a lot of it gets uh, exaggerated as well, you know.
1: Right. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because it seems like often in these cases, the person that goes down... the thing that they go down for may or may not be true or may be wildly exaggerated, but there's like a, a history of this person just being not liked or not popular in the office Mm -hmm. or just, you know, I I can think of, especially with cases in the workplace, like they kind of are looking for an excuse to get rid of this person anyway.
0: So I, I think that's only sometimes true. You know, another thing that happens is when you have a lot of attention around something, you know, and a mob forms, you know, mobs are always the same. And, you, and now I've seen them form over and over again. And they, they, there's, there's never any exception to what happens with a mob. So if a mob forms around somebody, and it's it's intoxicating for the people that are swept up inside of it, and they will remember things entirely differently than they previously remembered it. Like yeah. one person I spoke to was so devastated because he was like, you know, I realized he realized all these people didn't like him, that he thought had liked that he thought liked him. These are all people in his community. And I said to him, you know, it's not that they didn't like you. You know, they did like you. They don't remember liking you because they're swept up in the mania of a mob mentality. But they did like you at the time. They don't like you anymore. <laughs> you know, but the the mob like it, it. It twists your your entire psychology when it gets told of you. And you see it over and over again. And if there's enough attention, there will always be a second accusation. There's no exceptions to this. Mm. So, for example, what you see a lot is, like in my case, you know, okay, accused of rape. Well, then there's a whole bunch of attention. Nobody's coming forward to say that I raped them or did anything violent. So somebody finally says, oh, he made me uncomfortable at this conference. He asked me to watch a movie in his hotel room. You know, I mean, she made up a whole bunch of stuff. She didn't mention that the movie was the movie I was editing and so forth. And it was a lot of lies. But the but the important thing was now it was multiple accusations. Right. And then another person said I made him uncomfortable. Now it's three accusations, you know, and now soon you're such a bad person that nobody wants to defend you. You're no longer the right person to get behind on this issue. Like, OK, I want to talk about this issue, but that guy's so bad. I don't want that person to be. The person I'm talking about that issue with, you know, so mm-hmm. I'll wait for a better example. But wait. but that that better example will never come along because if the situation is the same. The act there will always be multiple accusations. It'll be like, oh, he murdered his grandmother and he like stole a library book. Okay, it's multiple accusations. Well, it it turns out he didn't murder his, his grandmother. You know, but until you know that, like the the second and third accusation often are so meaningless if the first accusation turns out not to be true. Like None of the accusations against me were anything if not considered with the rape accusation. When my editor turned on me and was like, well, I just thought he would have done something different and we're against this lawsuit, well, he didn't mention that I was accused of rape because they all knew that the rape charge was false. I don't think anybody thought the rape charge was, was true, but they had to defend the list somehow mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. and one of the ways of doing that is to say you're this person is such a bad person he's so horrible when so many people hate him that it doesn't matter if he's falsely accused of rape because we hate this guy look at all the people that hate this guy but that's just the mob that's how right. the mob works you know these are not people that hated me previously and that's i don't right. i don't care what they think I, I don't i think they're lying to themselves i think we were all friends actually
1: so, getting back to the literary community component of this, do you think that there is something particular to the to the temperament or just the kind of personality traits of a person in this world that makes them more susceptible yeah. to this kind of thing? Absolutely, clearly, <laughs> Which is because what? you're well, you're talking
0: about the most ambitious people in the world, and what they're fighting for, what they want, is this like sliver of attention, and there's so little attention to go around, you know, and. And people say all boats rise, but they know it's not true. They know all boats do not rise. They know there's a, just a couple of winners and nobody else gets anything. You've got these like coveted teaching gigs, you know, that pay nothing, but they're fighting for them so hard. You know, that, that, you know Moira Donegan was, was obsessed with Lauren Stein at the Paris Review. You know, the editor of the Paris Review. I mean, who cares about like, do you know anybody that reads the Paris Review? Nobody reads the Paris Review. You know, like, it, but it, for, but it's in some people's minds, this is a big deal, and that kind of thinking, I think, it, it just warps you, and you and you start, you know, you, you start bending to make allowances for this like kind of stick and twist of ambition that you don't necessarily have full understanding of. You know, and that's why you see it in politics, you see it in certain st- academic fields. You know, mm-hmm. you see it in certain. You know, it's all these people; these are the people lacking in integrity. You know, and they're, they're public facing. And so they're particularly susceptible to the mob. So they have an incentive to agree with what everybody else is saying. Cause you see what happens when you, when you don't agree. If you publicly don't agree with like, with the woke ideology, your book could get canceled. You know, right. you might have to like, you might have to give back your award. You might lose your teaching gig. You're dumb. You might not get published in a stupid paradigm review anymore.
1: <laughs> God forbid. You know? so i mean well, one of the things i have noticed is that all this said there are people in in publishing and in media who are stepping for people like you and i and speaking up about this Yay. and in ho- however but in hollywood for instance everyone is in lockstep nobody dares speak up you've got people I like think i, I agree with you okay tell me i I'm think wrong. so
0: because Well, you're talking about like a small, like heterodox segment who have decided they're going to be outsiders. And they're like, I'm out, you know, and, and also, you know, it's not as edgy as it was because more and more people have been like, oh, well, this is pretty crazy. And now people kind of try to slowly back away from it. You know, the mob is not currently in full effect, but the literary community, like find me a poet, find me a well-known poet. You know, you have a handful of heterodox journalists who are operating in that field. Right. So of course, you know, of course, you you can count on Kathy Young to take a reasonable approach. That's literally her beat. Well, you she know, was but never
1: find, in the. She was never in the. Uh, you know, respectable yeah, group find, anyway. Yeah.
0: Find find a po- You know, I would like you to point me to a poet. You know, or like just a regular like literary writer, a literary writer, not a not even a journalist. You know, and, and you know a short story person. That's like public, that's publicly mm-hmm. saying, you know, that, you know, this is wrong and we need to like defend people that we know who've been falsely accused. I was, you know, I wasn't mad at anybody who didn't speak publicly on my behalf. Cause I don't expect you to like throw your life away and lose your job and whatever. Like, I'm only mad at people that publicly attack me, you know, <laughs> if you didn't public, that's not, that's a very low bar. If you didn't publicly <laughs> attack me, we're all good. I'm not mad at you for not publicly saying anything. But then a couple of them, close friends, some of them who had even, like, reached out and said, you know, I'm sorry, I can't say anything publicly, but, I'm, you know, I hope you're okay. Then start, like, you see them on Twitter, like, making fun of cancel culture.
1: Uh-huh. And I'm like,
0: you're making fun of cancel culture, but you didn't feel comfortable publicly defending me when you knew I was falsely accused of rape, you know. And I was so offended. I started pushing back publicly, and they just took down the tweets, you know. Some, one person took down his whole Twitter account, actually. You know, because I I couldn't have it. I was like, I was livid, you know.
1: Right. No, I think I see your point. The sort of, you know, the quote unquote heterodox people, the Harper's Letters, signers, those tend tend to be journalists, more kind of like. It's a specific group that's already,
0: they're already like, like Malcolm Gladwell can push back against this stuff. He already occupies that type of a space, you know, but find a short story writer, a poet, like find, I'm talking about the literary community.
1: Right. You know. Well but let's talk about
0: those they, so, they don't have inte- integrity of the group generally so, generally
1: let's talk about Hollywood for a second because uh I mean just you see you know with j k Rowling, for instance, to see all these actors whose careers she made you know Daniel Radcliffe et all step mm-hmm. forward and denounce her for very yeah, uh, on very spurious grounds like that is just so emblematic of the bigger picture in Hollywood around these issues in general. So, it's
0: interesting. I wonder.
1: I mean, okay, they have so, so much to lose. There's so much money the, at stake. That's the
0: thing. I would wonder, and I don't have the answer to this, I don't know, but we're talking about really successful actors, right? You know what I mean? Like, whereas I'm talking about less successful writers, like right. unknown poets, you know?
1: Yes. Like, it's almost like it goes the opposite direction. So <laughs> I'm wondering. Yeah.
0: I think I want to believe, okay, I want to believe it. I don't know if it's true or not. I want to believe that lesser known actors still have integrity. I really like actors. They're like my favorite creative people, actually. You know, and I want to believe that they're, you know, because, but I mean, of course, actors are like children. So you got to have low expectations. But, um, I, you know, I love them because they're really just out there on the emotional edge all the time. And maybe the ones that are like really successful aren't out there on the emotional edge all the time. And they've got like a, you know, a $10 million house they want to protect and so forth. I don't know the answer and I'm just making shit up because it's not my, not my world or community, but I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure that that the behavior of the, of the really famous actors is indicative of all, of all actors. But in has general.
1: anyone spoken up is the, I can't think of any a list after anyone in Hollywood that comes to mind that has spoken up against cancel culture in any mm-hmm. kind of meaningful way. I mean, it would be a I just disaster. Say, it's,
0: it's really, I pay so little attention to Hollywood. I'm not mm-hmm. even, I'm not qualified to say, you know, it's yeah. just like, I just have zero idea. I don't want to say something and because I, don't, I, I, I just right. don't pay any attention at all.
1: You know? I mean, like, look what's happened to comedians. So you have somebody like right. Sarah, Sarah right. Silverman who has become very woke over the last several years after, you know, they, they, her entire career is built on.
0: you've But you have seen pushback among comedians, actually.
1: Well... Not that, not as much as you might like. But then they, you know, but then they go like. back. Okay, but like Sarah Silverman, for instance, you know, there was a moment on her, I guess she has a podcast and there was some video and there was a little clip that went viral where she was just kind of like, as if in real time, realizing that this tribalism was as destructive as it is, and like, wait a second, if I think this, I'm not allowed to think this, and it was, you know, kind of, kind of poignant. And I actually had Bridget Fetissey came on my podcast, and we talked about this particular incident. And there was a moment where I think a lot of people were like, "Oh wow, we have got Sarah back! Like, great! You know, she's she's coming back to the to the fold of, but actually, she didn't come back. She's still you're, tiptoeing around." You're- Lower
0: the bar, though, <laughs> and say, "Show me an even similar incident with a with a medium level short story writer or poet." You know what I mean? Well, like, they wouldn't
1: like have gone the, viral in the first place. <laughs> their, their little show podcast me a, clip. Show
0: me of, the yeah. moment. You know, show mm-hmm. me the moment of integrity. You know what I mean? Like, I think you know. Actually, well, actually, shimamanda It's
1: shimamanda, true, uh, DJ, She that we saw that with her.
0: Well, um, full pushback, and also Mary Gateskill. Who wrote an incredible novella about the Beat Two Movement, which is just like out of this world? And so oh, you're oh, C- Q, it's, yes, mm-hmm.
1: yeah,
0: yeah, right. and, yes, uh, very good. This is pleasure. This is pleasure. oh, I'm sorry, I mean, Q, Q is book. Q is the uh, Q
1: the is, is the uh, character. This is pleasure. Yeah. That's right. Yes,
0: yeah. Um, so there's some, but I I think overall comedians have shown more integrity than the literary community, and not, not as much as you might want, but I think I think I think still. I'm not sure you're going to find a community that's worse <laughs> or has less integrity than the literary community. I really think that like, you're pretty much at bottom there, you know?
1: So getting back to having money, making money now, are you actually flipping real estate? I- explain to us how this works. Cause I am under the impression you need large amounts of cash in order to do this. Right. I mean, that's
0: a lot of what I've been writing about in my Substack. stack weirdly, uh, you know, because I was talking to, you know, poets and stuff that I know. And like, where they don't think that they can buy a house. A lot, a lot of people think they can't buy a house, but actually they can buy a house. They just don't understand, you know? And then a lot of people confuse, uh, things like appreciation with cash flow, you know? And there are all these kind of basic concepts of real estate that, uh, and, and actually a concept of investing, you know, even buying stocks or companies or anything that for some reason, poets oh, and People, you know, creative people don't bother to learn or can't learn because their brains don't work that way. I've always been kind of mathy, you know. Like I used, I used to play competitive chess in high school and stuff. So that's like a, that's a type of brain, you know. Even though I don't play chess anymore and so forth, but I've never my, my vocabulary has never been particularly good, and I've never been particularly well read, and I'm not intellectual. I don't listen to NPR, even when <laughs> NPR is good, you know. <laughs> but, um, you know, so I've always kind of been on this other side of it so you know yeah so i was able to so when i when i left los angeles realizing that i was never going to make it in television now because you know because of this whole situation i think i i I didn't really have any money i hadn't i think i was down to like fifteen thousand dollars maybe my total like my total you know what i had in savings but then um I, i had a little bit of money in a 401k and. I had this house that I bought. so In New Orleans. Uh, in New Orleans. And that's why I was moving to New Orleans because I could live there cheaply. I could live in my house. And I could, like, rent the other side of the house, and that would pay the mortgage and so forth. And I could just kind of, like, not go outside for a year, which is what I did. But I, uh, you know, I was, I, well, I was actually, I had net worth. So even though I didn't have money coming in, you know, I had a certain net worth because I owned this property. You know, so I was able to like refinance this property you know and get a loan which I could then use as a down payment for another property you know and so forth, so I started you know doing that and getting more properties when I could, you know while also uh helping other people manage properties or you know or sometimes uh I saw I rented the property when that I realized was being you know, underutilized, um, and then uh, put money into that property, and but it's a like a long term commercial lease. So I kind of rebuilt the property at my own expense, but now I can profit off that property for so many years. You know, those are things you can do. There are, you know, I talk I talk about how um, there are properties you can get, for example, uh, like in Alabama and Indiana near Chicago. Uh, you could pay like. You know forty thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars for a house that that rents out for two percent of the purchase price of the house, which in a forty thousand dollar house that' would be eight hundred dollars a month and the reason it rents is such a a variable as such a high cash flow metric is because it's not going to go up in value <laughs> you know it 's not yeah. going to appreciate right so the places like uh, San Francisco or New York or Los Angeles where the mortgage is going to be more then you could rent the house for when you first buy it. So you, you're purchasing the house and you're waiting for it to catch up to where you're not losing money every month on that house. But people with a lot of money, that's what they do because the real money is an appreciation. It's not in cash flow. But when you're a small-timer like me and you're like, okay, I've got like $100,000 that I'm worth that I can that I somehow leverage to get more you know to make more, then you got to think about cash flow all the time because i i I wasn't in a financial situation where I could actually lose money, right, so I have to like like if I buy a property, it has to make money from day one, you know, and so people um that you live in a certain area, you're not thinking that way mm-hmm. you know? and then there's the particular uh investment of the first house, which is its own unique investment which is pretty much the best investment you can ever make you'll never make there's no better investment than the first house the one that you live in <laughs> no matter what it is you know mm. and so i try to i try to talk people through that and i'm just like buy the house buy a house buy any house it doesn't matter like i mean don't buy a house that's more than you can afford don't do that but in any other situation don't worry about waiting for the best deal don't worry about waiting for the perfect house just get the fucking house just do it right away you know because you'll never make it. there are advantages to it that are not there in any other investment you'll ever make, ever again in your life. You know? And so those it's funny because like in the sub stack I've been writing about like this is how you fix a sink, this is how you make a movie, this is how you publish a book without an agent, this is how you buy your first house, this is how you buy cash flowing property. This is the difference between cash flow and appreciation. And I uh the initial title, you know, I call it uh, Financial Advice for Poets.
1: So you, uh, you are successfully pivoting. I think uh, you are, this I, is a good lesson. I, you're a good role model. I, I,
0: I do think that people who have been canceled, if you talk to them about how they're making a living, like you're talking to people who have pivoted. Every single mm-hmm. one of them has had to pivot because they can no longer make a living the way they used to. And I think it's a really interesting topic. On the other hand, it's tricky because they don't want to tell you where they're working because, because then, the, then the mob is going to come there You know, like I've already had my house has been vandalized, you know, and my car, uh, somebody's breaking a rapist on my car. Like, I don't know anybody in New Orleans and still, Mm. you know, somebody in New New Orleans tracked me down and did this to my house and to my car. So, you know, so there's a certain part of that where you're like, you just want to, like, be as far below the surface as possible. Right. You know, like I probably shouldn't do this podcast. You know, you know. But I was like,
1: <laughs> well, it's brand new. I did, there might be five uh, viewers, so right, you might right. be safe. It's and, a safe space, very
0: enclosed. I'm just determined to just like live my life as normally as I can, despite mm-hmm. the circumstances. See, like I'm not. I don't want to make any. Like in the beginning, I wouldn't talk about the case and stuff with people because I didn't want to hurt the lawsuit. But the lawsuit's been going on three years, and we haven't even started. They're still trying to have it dismissed and so forth. Mm. So I'm just like, yeah, I'm just going to live my life and. Do whatever i would do normally you know i mean i, I i've made a lot of changes like i, I would i would have really liked to open a coffee shop and the, one of the properties that i was managing had a huge downstairs i could have turned into a coffee shop and i would have done that at one point and i was like yeah that's not really an option for me you know what i mean it would get out that i owned the coffee shop and it would be vandalized and so forth and mm-hmm. so it, i just had to like you know so i can't do anything but as much as much as possible i just try to like live my life and not Pay attention to that part of my situation.
1: Yeah. Do you? Uh, I'm assuming you don't have your name on a Google alert or anything like that. Uh, I don't. No, I certainly I don't, don't either. No. I, I'm actually amazed at the number of people who have their name on Google alert or yeah. are even aware of anything. Anything. Anything says anybody says about them on Twitter where they're not added. Mm. I would never see anything about myself unless they specifically. Tweet I, at I don't May. think
0: people. I don't think people talk about me very much, but but occasionally, you know, it must happen because then, you know, they've my stuff. Or, yeah, I've, I've heard of people being approached. You know, somebody like was writing that they liked my book, and somebody was like, "Do you know the you know get a lecture? Like you can't read that person's book. That person, you know, has been accused of rape. You know, you can't ever. You can't ever. No authors know, I mean, ever do with have, someone. Yeah. <laughs> If someone be accused of rape, that's it. You can't, you, you know, and you're not participating in their cancellation, then you're basically, you know, you're saying maybe they're not guilty. Of, you know, you're considering that possibility, which is, you know, not mm-hmm. okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, well, Stephen, thank you for talking with me uh, on this extremely early edition of uh, unspeakable extras or whatever I'm going to call it. I'm still figuring it out, but uh, yeah, thank, thank you. It's nice, it's nice to be an extra. Okay. Yes. Uh, good to see you and uh, good luck uh, you too. everything. Okay. Same. That was my conversation with Stephen Elliott. A partial video version of this interview is available on the Unspeakable channel on YouTube. A full video version is available to Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can find Stephen's self-help newsletter, the one with investment advice, on Substack at stephenstack.substack.com. Again, the deadline for my next personal essay and memoir masterclass on Zoom is December 20th, and you can go to daummasterclass.com to learn more about it and to apply. By the way, with the holidays coming up, you might want to go to this show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com, and visit the Nuance store and buy some nuanced AF merchandise for that special critical thinker in your life. There are hats, shirts, mugs, thermoses, stickers, magnets, a baby onesie, really great stocking stuffers, um, and you can wrap them up and put them under the tree if they don't fit in a stocking. Or if you don't celebrate Christmas, you can also give them as a gift. Maybe it's somebody's birthday. Anyway, I've talked enough for today. I'll be back next week with more supercharged nuance. Thanks for listening. See you next time.